Well, good morning. All right. We got a lively crowd. Amen. Here we go. I'm Pastor Barry. I'm the executive pastor here at New Life. And if you're joining us in person or joining us online, we're just so thankful that you decided to join us for weekend worship. And whether this is your first time here or you've been coming for many years, we're just so excited and glad that you decided to be here with us. We say every week that we take time to pray for all of you, to pray that God would move in this place, that you're our guests, and that is very true this weekend as well. If you've been coming for a number of weeks, you'll know that we're at the tail end of our summer series, which we've called Mountain Monologues. And we're actually in week 18 of 20, so we're almost there, right? We've made it through. We're almost to the end. We can see the finish line. And I have the opportunity to speak on Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 this weekend, which is about the fruit that we bear with our lives. Now, sometimes when we're doing sermon prep, we have the opportunity to pick topics, and then sometimes for a variety of circumstances, we're kind of like assigned a topic. So a couple months ago, Pastor Chris asked if I would take this topic, and I said, sure. Uh, but anytime I'm assigned a topic, I'm always going in the back of my mind, wonder why I got that one, right? Why did I get this one? And so uh, as I looked at the scripture for this week, it came to me. It's like, well, the only reason that they gave me this is because I'm the only one on staff who has any farming experience, right? Now, some of you laugh, but you may not know, I grew up on a farm. I still live on that farm. Uh, and for my childhood, we raised produce, like serious produce. And you're like, what's serious produce? One year, we planted 10,000 pepper plants. Yeah, I know, we're kind of a big deal. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen 10,000 of anything, but it's a lot. To help you have like, some sort of idea, 10,000 pepper plants planted in plastic is a mile long. At the end of it, you just die. That's what happens. You, you plant them, and then you die, and then they bury your body, and you feed the pepper plants. So, yeah, 10,000 pepper plants. To this day, I don't love peppers. I eat them because my wife says I have to set a good example for our children, but that's about it, you know. But every year that we entered into farming, we learned something new. And one of the things that we got to learn pretty quickly is farming's a, an interesting enterprise. Because no matter what you do throughout the year, you're going to have one crop that does really awesome, and then you're going to have a crop that just fails. I'm sure any of you that have a home garden have experienced that. You're like, why are my tomatoes doing so well this year, and my peas are just terrible? It's because God hates peas. Yeah. yeah, they're terrible. No one likes peas. And as growing up on a produce farm, when the peas did terrible, I was stoked. Because if you try to pick peas, it's awful. Peas and beans. My dad's like, fill that bushel basket. I'm like, Jesus is going to come back before we fill that thing up. <laughs> what is wrong with you? You're like, why did you move back to the farm? I only moved back because we quit produce farming. That's why we went back. But there would be sometimes where things would happen that we had, had no idea, we couldn't anticipate, and they were just sort of like, wow, I wonder how this happened. We must be really good at this. And that was the year, that was the case the year that we raised a nine and a half pound cantaloupe. Now, for those of you who don't regularly weigh cantaloupe, all of you, like a cantaloupe's like two, three pounds, right, about this size. 
a nine and a half pound cantaloupe is the size of a basketball. So I was out one day in the field as a little kid, and my sister and I were running around working, um, and we stumbled across this cantaloupe, and it's ripe, and we're like, oh my gosh, this thing's huge. So we picked it, and we took it down to my folks, and we were like, look at this thing. And we were excited because we'd only been produce farming for a couple of years at this point, and we're like, we've arrived, <laughs> right? If you can do this, like, we're experts. This is the greatest thing we've ever seen. We actually... We're so excited about the whole thing, we took a picture. Now, the picture is actually going to be up on the screen here. There it is. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, if I look fatigued, it's because I just planted 10,000 peppers. (laughs) And in true future executive pastor fashion, you'll note that I misspelled but documented cantaloupe 1991 at the bottom because if it's not documented, it doesn't actually exist. And I did that. I didn't do that like yesterday. My handwriting's that's pretty much the same. So, so yeah, we raised this nine-and-a-half-pound cantaloupe, and we thought, man, this is great. We told our neighbors. I think my dad actually sent the picture in to the newspaper. We thought that we had arrived. But sadly, unbeknownst to us, that cantaloupe wasn't all that it appeared to be. The inside wasn't like the outside. And if you're going to take notes and fill in the blanks, that's the first one. The inside wasn't like the outside. And that's really what we're looking at today. That's our focus, having things appear the same inwardly and outwardly. Jesus has mentioned this repeatedly throughout his Sermon on the Mount that we've looked at over the previous 17 weeks. And I think the gist of that is summed up quite nicely in what is our take-home point for today, And our take-home point is the point that I hope to make throughout the sermon and something that I hope that we take with us throughout the week. And it quite simply is this. In the end, what we do reveals who we really are. In the end, what we do reveals who we really are. Pastor Chris often says that hypocrisy, quite simply, is when our words and our actions are pretty far apart. They don't match. We say one thing and yet we do another. And when our words and our actions match completely, what we have is an example of Jesus, right? He's the only person to have ever come and done exactly what he said he was going to do. So we all live our lives somewhere on this spectrum, but our goal is to reflect Jesus, to be like him, to have the inside and the outside be the same. So let's see what Jesus has to say. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, if you have your Mountain Monologues booklet, Uh, We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. The words will also be up on the screen here in a moment, but before that, let's pray. Father God, we ask and pray that as we come before you, our hearts and our minds opened through the worship that we just expressed, Father, we pray that you would speak to us, that your word would infiltrate our hearts, our souls, our spirits, so that, Father, we could receive your word, that you would transform our lives. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, 
you will recognize them. So Jesus starts this passage by warning us of what he calls false prophets. And by all outward appearances, these people would appear to be helpful, holy, or devout. There's something in them that seems as if it's going to be a good thing. The Apostle Paul actually says a very similar thing in Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul has been on his missionary journeys. He's returning to Jerusalem, and along the way, he stops and visits some dear friends in Ephesus, and he shares these words. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Jesus and Paul both show a true concern for their believers, their disciples. They do not want them to be led astray by the teachings of those with less than ideal motives, folks who would seek to do this for their own personal gain. Even though on the surface, these folks would appear to be helpful, they're teaching beneficial. We could even go a step further and say that their words would appear and their teaching would appear to be true, right? The best lie is truth slightly distorted. And so these folks, these false teachers, these wolves would appear to be helpful, their teaching would appear to be true, but the underlying motives would not be pure. They would be seeking personal gain. Jesus goes on to tell us that we'll recognize the wolves by the fruit that they produce with their lives. So when I read that, I go, well, what's the fruit? I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus mentions this near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, because what we really have to do is reflect on the previous 17 weeks, the previous couple of chapters in Matthew, to get our answer. Now, if you haven't been able to make it to all the services, I would highly encourage you at the very least to read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you have time, you can go back and view the ones that you missed because the teaching that Jesus has presented up to this point is the under, are the underpinnings for this passage. He wants us to see if we are actually living out what He has instructed in those previous weeks. So when we're trying to identify false prophets, these are the types of questions we should be asking. Are their lives marked by the Beatitudes? Are they full of salt and light? Have they accepted the narrow gate teachings of a fulfilled law around anger and lust and oaths, all those things that we have covered? Do generosity, prayer, and fasting pour forth from their lives? Are they storing up treasure here on earth or in heaven? Where are they placing the things which they value? Are they accountable to someone? Are their lives marked by peace? Do they seek to serve the other? If so, perhaps good fruit, trustworthy. However, if their lives are marked by show or notoriety or selfishness or greed, if there's a greater care for self than for the other, then probably not. And their fruit will be born, and as a result, the kingdom of God will be damaged and many will be led astray. This is the warning that Jesus and Paul echoes. We need to be on guard. 
Jesus goes on to point out that the distinctions will be as clear as picking grapes or figs from thorn bushes or briars or, or brambles or any of those things. It should be rather obvious. But if it's so obvious, why would Jesus have to warn us? It just seems as if there's a sense in which Jesus has to call this to our attention because otherwise we would likely miss it on our own. What's further implied is that we ought to know what good fruit actually looks like, right? We need to know what good fruit actually looks like. And for us, that's best displayed in God's Word and through the teachings of Jesus Himself. And so it does us much good to avail ourselves to the Word of God. Otherwise, we won't know good fruit or bad fruit when we see it. We just came back from a camping trip as a family. My family loves camping. Notice I said my family loves camping. I go camping because I love my family. I'm a hero to them. It's okay. But every year I, I say to my wife, like, do we really want to go camping? She's like, we love camping. I'm like, okay. And then across my news feed will come the story of, like, the family of five that gets stranded out there somewhere, and they eat the poison berries. And I'm like, look, we shouldn't go because they didn't know what good fruit was. That could be us. You know, we were on a hiking trail or on a little nature trail, and our kids were pointing at mushrooms. And like, can we eat those? And I said, no. And then later that day we had pizza with mushrooms on it. And they're like, are you trying to kill us? Did you clean your room? You know? Uh-huh. But why do people make those mistakes? We're like, we couldn't possibly be that stupid. But people eat that stuff all the time. And let's be honest, the history of Christianity is littered with examples of folks that have been led astray by false prophets. We don't have to look hundreds of years in the past. We only need to look at today. So Jesus warns us. And we must know what good fruit actually looks like. We need to reflect a group of folks called the Bereans. They're found in Acts chapter 17. They studied the Word of God daily so that they would know what good fruit looked like when it presented itself. Acts 17 says this, Now the Berean Jews were of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the, the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They knew good fruit when they saw it because they availed themselves to the Word of God. Finally, we have to remember that Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Mark actually mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. He was talking to a whole spectrum of people, right, from the most common commoner to the most highly educated teacher of his day. So as he was talking about folks being instructed by false prophets, he was also talking to folks who would very likely be teaching in the not-too-distant future, perhaps even that day. So he was warning all of them, and I would argue by extension us, not to engage in this type of practice either. See, the knife, it always cuts both ways. Am I a false teacher? What fruit am I producing? What's the truth look like as a reflection of me? There's a parallel passage to Matthew 7. It's actually found in Luke chapter 6. A parallel passage is when there is a very similar uh, word to what we see in another gospel expressed from a different viewpoint. And Luke 6 takes this passage and makes it much more personal. 
Pastor Mark actually pointed out a couple of weeks ago. We love to take certain passages, right, and put them on a pedestal, and we want to remove it from the context. But really, in order for us to get a whole view of what Jesus has to say, we have to look at all of these passages. Because if we just took Matthew chapter 7, all we'd have to do is say, hey, we just got to watch out for those guys over there. But Luke chapter 6 makes it much more personal, and it says this. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Sounds about the same. But it becomes personal when he says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Jesus, right? Never lets us off the hook, does he? Not only do we have to be on the lookout, not only do we have to be aware and know what good and bad fruit look like, we also have to do some self-reflection, don't we? He always makes it personal, always. And so if we take those same questions that we just asked of, you know, those other people, and let's apply them to ourselves. Are our lives marked by the Beatitudes? Are we full of salt and light? Have we begun to assume the new covenant fulfilled uh, uh, interpretation of a law with lust and oaths and anger? Have we begun to, to... to walk that through in our lives? Do generosity, prayer, and fasting pour forth from us? To whom are we accountable? And are our lives marked by peace? Where are we storing up our treasure? Is it on heaven? Is it in heaven or is it on earth? Do we seek to serve the other? If so, good fruit. Good fruit. However, if our lives are marked by show or notoriety or selfishness or greed, or a greater care for ourselves than the other, then perhaps Jesus is actually calling us to something different than we had thought when we begin to do this self-reflection. Jesus actually takes it a step further and makes it far more personal in John chapter 15. And in John 15, he says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The message is clear. Do we want to bear good fruit? We must remain in the vine. It's interesting that in John 15, Jesus points out a couple of things. 
First, if we have heard the word of Christ and accepted it, we're already clean. We're his believers. We're saved. So if that's you, if you've accepted Jesus, you've heard his word and received it, we're clean. Jesus has done the work. It's done. It's done. But now he's saying, now it's your turn. Now it's our turn. Now it's time to get to work. And the only way that that happens is if we remain in him. And how does that happen? We have to live as Jesus lived. We have to look at the previous 17 weeks. We have to look at the Gospels as a whole. And we look, at, we look for those similar patterns that Christ begins to lay out. For example, spending time with the Father. Is it interesting that the God of the universe comes to earth as a man and spends the majority of his time communing with his Father? Why is that? Because he's setting an example. Nothing is done outside of the work of the Father for Jesus. Neither is it done for us outside of our time with Him. We have to put His teachings and actions into practice. We have to carve out the time. We have to build that relationship, making, making it a priority, just as Jesus did. We must remain in the vine, for when we do, we produce a crop for His kingdom. Otherwise, we're not good for much of anything. We're thrown into the fire and burned. So we cut open the largest cantaloupe we'd ever grown. Nine and a half pounds. I don't even like cantaloupe. <laughs> don't like it. To this day, I eat it because my wife says I have to set a good example for our kids. <laughs> Luckily, my mom at the time knew I didn't love cantaloupe, so she got some vanilla ice cream because I was going to have vanilla ice cream with a little bit of cantaloupe, the way God intended it to be. And we cut it open, and we cleaned it, and we carved it, you know, you put it into little chunks, and we tasted it, and it was awful. My dad, as he was spitting out the cantaloupe, said, hey, that's a result of cross-pollination. To this day, I have no idea what cross-pollination is. I just, he tried to explain it to me. It's about, don't worry about it. Google it if you really care. But let's, I'll tell you what happened. So, because I had documented on the picture, you always thought, you know, why is that important? Because we have the date, 1991. So in 1990, the year before, we had planted cantaloupe, and the cantaloupe had grown, and we had harvested the cantaloupe, but always, you know, there's a few, they're like, eh, you're not going to make the cut, you're too ripe, whatever, you leave them in the field, right? And those cantaloupe die, and they decay, and the seeds go into the ground. And then they germinate the next year, which is what happened in 1991, and they produced a vine, but the vine was tainted. And so the fruit that produced wasn't cantaloupe. It was actually some sort of hybrid mix between what we can only describe as a pumpkin cantaloupe squash. Mm -mm -mm. Now, I would highly recommend that if you want to be a hit at your next picnic, that you should try the hybrid cantaloupe pumpkin squash casserole. Because no matter which way you go, it's going to be wrong. Did you ever have warm cantaloupe? Oh, it's awful. Did you ever have cold pumpkin? It was terrible. It was the worst thing we'd ever grown. And so we threw it in to our pigs because that's all that it was good for, was to feed them. This isn't an easy teaching. Last week, Pastor Chris referenced the narrow gate and the narrow road. This is a narrow gate and narrow road passage. Very few actually find it. 
This is not an easy one. Jesus' words are meant to challenge. This is no different. We must remain in the vine. But if we choose, if we choose to do so, if the inside begins to match the outside, oh, what God will do. Oh, what God will do. He's just waiting. The offer's there. We're already clean under the blood of Jesus Christ. He's asking, will you remain in me? Because apart from me, you can do nothing. My wife and I have had the opportunity over the past several years to lead a small group here at New Life. Uh, Folks have come and gone, but for the past several years, we've had a very consistent group, and it's been one of the most life-giving things we've ever done. To the fact where I will boldly tell you that if you're not in a small group, you're missing out. You're missing out. We're signing up here in a couple of weeks. And I actually said to Pastor Mark the other day, what I wish I could tell everybody is that I hope that someday at New Life, you actually, I'm surprised if you're not in a small group. It's like, oh, you're not in a small group? Are you, are you dying? I mean, can you not get out of your house? What's wrong? How, do you need help? Because that has just been our experience. It's been incredible. If you are not in a small group, run into one because it has been one of the most life-giving things for my wife and I. And we're like professional Christians, you know? We're supposed to have all this together. Shocker, we don't. And so we have this group of incredible folks. Now, they're not superheroes. If they were, I don't know why they'd hang out with me. But they've been faithful. They've been faithful. They've shown up. They're committed. We have 10 adults and like something like 13 or 15 kids. I can't actually get a head count. Because they're everywhere in our house. They're just running amok. We have one babysitter, God bless her heart. I don't, we don't pay her enough. She keeps coming back. I don't know. But we've come together. And you know, when you get 25 people in a confined space like that, issues arise. We've worked through them. We've navigated them. Actually, most of them, they've navigated them without the help of the pastor, which is great. I don't even let them call me a pastor. I'm like, I'm just Barry, please. And it's been awesome. Because what we've seen in that group has been nothing short of incredible. Why? Because they've begun to give themselves to, be, to remaining in the vine through prayer, through Scripture, through worship, through community, and yeah, through fasting. The guys in my group actually came up to me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, we're fasting Tuesday morning. And I'm like, okay. What am I going to say? No. Yeah. When the guys in your small group are like, hey, we're doing this thing. So we're all in. They're all in. And I've begun to see God change and shape and transform their lives in incredible ways. I have the opportunity every couple weeks to meet with a couple of young guys. We get breakfast a couple times a month. Same story. They've begun to plug into the vine. And as they have, their lives have changed. Their generosity has increased. I've watched as they've laid their time, their talents, their treasures, and their touch upon the altar of God and say, hey, do with it what you will. Most of them are serving you in some capacity this very weekend. Not because I'm awesome, but because God has worked in their heart. I'm watching Him change them. I'm watching Him transform them. I'm watching them become new creations. I'm watching them bear good fruit. I've seen them remain in the vine. I have have had the honor and privilege of watching that. And it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever been a part of. 
I'll be honest, I can't wait to see what God's going to do in and through their lives in the days and weeks and months to come. I have no idea. I have no idea what it's going to look like. But it's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. And that's our goal, right? To look like Jesus, to see his kingdom grow and advance, to see lives changed, to see people pour out their fruit for him, good fruit, fruit that lasts. The fruit produced will certainly be good if they continue to remain in the vine. The inside will match the outside. Now, I have no idea, ultimately, what God's going to do through their lives. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I do know this. I've seen Him impact every area of their lives, their relationships, their friendships, their families, their marriages, their workplaces. It has to. When we remain in the vine, that fruit is produced in every area of our lives. Every area of our lives. Every area. And if it's God's doing it for them, He can certainly do it for us, can He? Amen? That's the hope. That's the goal. Simple, not easy. Simple, but not easy. Here's the crazy secret. Here's what we hold to the end, right? The fruit that they're producing, it's going to change the world. You're like, it's going to change the world. It's going to change the world. I've already seen it impact every aspect of their lives right now in every part of life that they're, in, that they're entering into. And next year, we're going on mission. They're taking it to the nations. I can't wait to see what God's going to do in and through their lives. As we've poured into them, now they can't wait to pour out here, there, and everywhere in between. From CrossFit to Cambodia, from Penn United to Phnom Penh, everywhere in between, everywhere in between. There is no space in all of creation in which God will not take that fruit, put it into action, and change the world. He has to. And if we remain in the vine, that fruit will be produced, and it will change the world. It'll change our lives. Jesus promises that when we remain in Him, we'll bear that fruit, and it'll be good. Now, if this is something that you seek to live out, I'd ask that you join me in the next step for this week. And the next step, which we're going to put on the screen, is quite simply this. I will bear good fruit in the power of the Holy Spirit this week. We cannot do this on our own. What's, what's the formula? Jesus has made us clean. John 15 is clear. We remain in the vine. He changes us so that we bear good fruit. They always say every pastor has to preach the sermon to himself first, and this is true of me. And as I did some self-reflection this week, what became really clear very quickly was, I'm a wolf. Absolutely. I would do whatever I could for my own benefit and gain. Do I have to exploit others to get there? Not a problem. That's who I am. But that's not who I am through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, who, thanks be to God, has taken our lives and begun to work in them, to transform them, so that we don't look the same today as what we did yesterday, and tomorrow, who knows what He'll do. So as we seek to bear that fruit, let us remember 
that we must remain in the vine because ultimately it's in and through Him that we have the ability to bear good fruit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We praise You for who You are, for the work that You've done. Father, we ask that these words would impact our lives. Father, that they would cut deep to our hearts, that You would change and transform us, renew us into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may go forth from here to the end of the driveway to the end of the world to impact Your kingdom in every area that our lives touch. We thank You. We praise You. It's in Your name. Amen.